0: It's good to be here with you today and um, to be able to uh, open the Word of God with you. I uh, wonder, um, how many of you have been uh, catching any of the World Cup that's going on? Any hands out there? The what? (laughs) Two hands? I thought first service was bad. There's only one hand in first service. You're killing me, my heart. Oh man, I was going to preach to my team... Germany jersey this morning but thought you might not appreciate it. The World Cup, yeah. For those of you who don't know, you know, the World Cup is unlike the faulty titles we give our sporting events. The World Series in baseball. I mean, come on, who else in the world was invited? Huh? The Super Bowl in football or the NBA playoffs in basketball where the victors emerge as world champions. Yeah, okay. Who cares what the rest of the world thinks? Or whether they want to play, we are the world champions. But no, the World Cup is actually an event, a sporting event, where teams from all across the globe compete in the game of soccer. If you've been following, you know that uh, Team USA has met an untimely divide, demise. They uh, they uh, never really showed up, actually. Um, they came and they went and... Uh, Yeah, that's that's the way it goes. But I I believe we would have won if there hadn't been any other countries involved. (laughs) Maybe that's why the rest of the world doesn't like us too much. I don't know. Um, But anyway, the World Cup has had an interesting catchphrase. If you've been watching TV the last couple of weeks, Um, their, their phrase that ESPN has used is, one game changes everything. One game changes everything. I'd like to show you a little clip here. One line in the clip says, um, it closes a city, it stops a war. Talking about this game of soccer. It's a simple thing. Just a ball and a goal. But Very small years, one small boy is a simple thing. you turn, turn it up a little bit? changes the world. It closes the schools, closes the shops. The city stops a war. A simple boy up the, the passion and pride of nations. It gives people everywhere something to hope for. It gives countries respect, where respect is short supply. Machines more than the politicians ever could. Once every four years, a ball of the impossible means anything, the world as we you know it is about to change. The FIFA World Cup on ESPN and ABC. One game changes everything. That line it uh, it closes a city. Um, They've said actually, whenever the World Cup comes around, the amount of people calling in sick increases three hundred percent. But it doesn't really matter because the bosses are out sick, too. The city's closed down. Um, it, it stops the war. It's actually a true story. After three years of civil war, feuding factions talked for the first time in years. And the president called the truce because the little country of Ivory Coast in Africa qualified for the very first time ever for the World Cup. And as everyone knows, a country united makes for better cheerleaders than one divided. Interesting, isn't it? The whole world is watching one game, one little ball, a world except for us, maybe. (laughs) One game changes everything. And I thought, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that uh, we've been taking some time to seriously consider and focus on some words uh, from God. Actually, some of the very first commandments that God gives, the book of Deuteronomy Turn with me there if you would. I wonder, if we have the same kind of focus on these words of God, and really the heart of these words, the heart that Jesus says, is to love God with everything you are, and to love your fellow man and woman as you love yourself. If we really did that, and our lives were focused to that end, would that change everything? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Chapter 5, I'm sorry. Chapter 5 in Deuteronomy. You'll know if you've been with us the last few weeks of the context in which the commandments were given. The prologue in chapter, six, or chapter 5 and verse 6 of Deuteronomy is actually part and parcel of the first commandments. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me those are actually all together as part of the first commandment because you see god is a relational god god wanted to ground and to base the rest of what he said on this one fundamental principle that it was he who initiated the relationship with his people he was the one that brought them out of egypt he was the one that brought them out of slavery. He was the one that freed them. He was the one that kept his promise of faithfulness. He was the one who initiated relationship with his people. And so, here we have a picture of a God. A God who is first and foremost a relational God. Everything else that comes afterwards is in this context of relationships. Relationships. It's kind of like, if you will, use the metaphor of planting a garden. I know there's many gardeners out here in the congregation. You love to throw in a few tomatoes when summertime comes around, maybe some green beans. I know my dad, he can't go without some okra. Gotta have some okra in there. You, you plant the garden, and you water and you grow it, and, and you know what happens, little rabbits. I've got a little rabbit that's taken residence in our backyard. I don't know where he came from, but he lives in our shed, and we just can't have the heart to get rid of him. If he was a gopher, he would be gone, but uh, the rabbit. And he comes out and nibbles, you know, here and there. And you have to, you have to, you have to create some boundaries, some fences. So, so if you live in a place where deers are, the deers don't come in and eat your corn. Or, or, or things don't come in and destroy what you're nurturing and growing. And so the fruit can actually develop. And what comes in these commandments after this first one, I am the Lord your God, I am a relational God are, in essence, in metaphorical terms, fences, boundaries, ways that God has designed to keep us protected, to keep us safe, to give us the ability to grow and to develop fully, to experience the joy of life. As you know, we are now going moving on to the Seventh Commandment. And those of you that know your commandments, I had somebody come up to me after first service and said, you pastors... You must have drawn the short straw, huh? Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. That's the lesson for today. Enough said, let's go home, amen. Shall not commit adultery. Yeah, wow. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I I don't think we can diminish the commandment that easily, though. Even though perhaps most people, if you were to take a poll, were to agree that adultery is wrong or is not good, it's estimated that over 50 to 60 percent of us have experienced extramarital sexual affairs. And perhaps an even greater amount of us have experienced what is known as an emotional affair, a relationship outside of the marriage that is intimate emotionally. Not perhaps, without the sexual aspects, so it's prevalent it's it's here with us. it happens, and it's honestly very difficult to talk about because there's so many things involved but I mean really, in our society in our in our culture that says um, not so sure about the monogamy thing, that maybe a better way is to is to experiment with free love, right? To love without limit, to really express yourself sexually. I mean, that's when you really discover who you are. Or maybe, you know, you can marry, but, you know, have an open marriage. Not so much closed, but have an open marriage. Agree with your spouse that, you know, um, it's good to express yourself sexually outside of the marriage and you're still married, but you have that freedom. Does this commandment make any sense in our culture today? Does it, Is it still relevant? Are the vows that people take while they're at the altar, are they really realistic? To have and to hold, to cherish, to... Uh, so, death do us part, you know, and are the consequences of adultery, of unfaithfulness, that bad anyway? So, what's wrong with a little affair as long as you don't get caught, right? It's interesting doing some uh, research on this. Um, I ran across a book. It's called "The Fifty Mile Rule: Your Guide to Infidelity and Extramarital Etiquette." Caught my attention. The 50-mile rule, and and I was amazed because I found multiple books such as this. The 50-mile rule explores why people commit adultery. It's good. Uh, The awful truth about the consequences of adultery. It's good. And how to avoid getting caught. Find out what makes a suitable affair partner. Find out the adultery rules you must never break. Find out when to call it quits, and find out what to do if you get caught. They conclude by saying a successful affair is an undiscovered affair. Let the 50-mile rule show you how best to stray so you don't have to pay. If you're not reading this book, your spouse probably is. So faithfulness in marriage, does it matter anymore? Is it relevant I think we could find some arguments. I would say yes. There's probably no more powerful illustration that God uses throughout the Old Testament, anyway, of His relationship with His people Israel. And the term that keeps coming up over and over and over is this term adultery. How? the Israelites had been had committed adultery against God, how they had searched for other gods, how they had went out and prostituted themselves with other gods and with other peoples and other nations. This theme of adultery is woven throughout the Old Testament. A theme of unfaithfulness. And yet, parallel to that is a theme of God's unending faithfulness. Of God's Ability to forgive and to reconcile and to heal and to restore. And so these two themes weave themselves throughout the Old Testament. Time after time we come across these ideas. Probably no clearer than we find in the book of Samuel. We're going to spend a little time there. Turn with me to the book of Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter eleven. look at a story that probably even if you don't, didn't grow up in the church or never really grew up reading the Bible, you probably have heard this story because it's quite popular. Um, I was doing some searches for maybe some graphics on this story and uh, couldn't find anything suitable to show you. It's amazing um, how people like to embellish this story. David and Bathsheba, infamous. A case study, if you will, in adultery. In the spring, verse 1, chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. You know, that's just strange. I don't know what that's about. The time when kings go off to war. It's about that time. Let's go, boys. I don't know. Doesn't make much sense in our culture. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And these two verses just gloss over unbelievable picture of war. Destroying whole communities. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now some commentators right there say that that was probably his first problem. He sent his boys out. He stayed at home. Catch a little R&R, little relaxation, and one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof. That's curious, isn't it? Why is he getting up from his bed in the evening, just lying around all day? Maybe he was really tired. I don't know. Eating grapes is tiring. Walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing You know the story. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, it's interesting. Those two descriptors of Bathsheba, this woman. First, she's somebody's daughter. Second, she's somebody's wife. Two powerful relationships that David is entering into. I wonder, and this is just a total diversion, but I wonder if when temptation comes to you and I, through images, through whatever, what would happen if you and I recalled that every woman is somebody's daughter? Could be mine. And a man could be someone's wife. (laughs) Could be someone's wife. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Man. You know what I mean. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Three verses change everything in the life of David. You know the rest of the story, I'm sure. David, I don't know, I imagine he panics as most of us would do. You get word that you're a father with a woman who is not your wife. You see, this, this scene is a little different than what we are used to because we're not in the position of David. We don't have his kind of power. Maybe. We don't have his kind of authority to go and snatch someone away. Actually, the word that's used here in Hebrew as as uh, um, where it says... Um, David sent messengers to get her. That's actually very mild. The Hebrews actually grab a hold or grasp her, almost in a violent sense, to come and to fulfill his needs. See, the issue here for for David, and actually pretty much throughout the Old Testament and, and even when the commandment was given, was not an issue of monogamy, as perhaps it is today for us. Because David, as you know, had many wives. Solomon, his son, had many, many, many wives. Concubines. Having multiple wives wasn't necessarily the issue. The issue was honoring and respecting marriage covenants. The marriage covenants of the community. What was so... They, probably if David had had said, you know, I'm looking for a beautiful woman, he would have easily found himself another wife. But he didn't. He took what was not rightfully his. So he tries to cover it up You know the story. He sends uh, word for for her husband to come back, Uriah to come back home from the war, to uh, to persuade him to go and spend some time with his wife. Um, verse eight. Then David says to Uriah, "Go down to your house and wash your feet." Code word for gusset yourself up and get ready to love your wife. But Uriah, a man of a man of integrity, said, "I can't do it. I, my 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 fellow men are out there fighting a war. How can I indulge myself and, and relax when I know they're fighting?" So he slept there in the palace. The next day, David, probably even in more of a panic, said. All right, come and eat and drink with me. And he made him drunk. He said, All this wine and Uriah, even though he was imbibe, in, imbibed, even though he was drunk, he still had the presence of mind when David said, now go, go and you know, spend some time with your wife. I can't. And he slept there. David, desperation, sent a message with him back to the front of the army. Joab, right? When you attack, put him in the front of the line. When when the enemy is is coming on full force, retreat so that he will be slain. That's exactly what happens. Word sent back to David. End of the chapter here. Verse 25 of chapter 11. messenger came back. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city. And destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Sounds like he was trying to encourage himself. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, not only had she been defiled by the king, not only was she now pregnant with his child, but she lost her husband. We don't spend much time there, do we, in the story? Because it's a little, much, little little, too painful. She mourned for him, and after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. a very mild statement. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. At this point of the story, it's you and I, we're just hoping and wishing and probably throughout the story, David, you're a man of God. You're the King of Israel. You were chosen as a little shepherd boy. Right? Samuel came and placed his hand and anointed you with oil. You were God's chosen. How could you be doing this? You're a man after God's own heart. How could you do this? And, and we and we long for David just, you know, even towards the beginning, even after the, the act had been done. Why, David, did you have to cover it up? Why couldn't you just stand up and say, you know, I messed up. I'm sorry. I did this thing. Why couldn't you be the hero that way? And then again, at the end of the story, even after Uriah dies... Why couldn't she stand up and say, you know, it's my fault? Then, why couldn't she just come out and admit that? But he doesn't. A man who is known after God's own heart, a man who is faithful, is exhibiting unbelievable faithlessness. Well, you know the story, and I I always hearken back to uh, my daughter's VeggieTales tape. You know what I'm talking about, right? King George and the rubber ducky. Yeah. King George, up on his binoculars, sees a little boy with a rubber ducky. He's got a whole closet full of duckies, but he wants that rubber ducky. So he goes in the middle of the night, steals the rubber ducky, comes back home. Ah, now I'm satisfied. My rubber ducky. And it was the only look. Nathan comes in, and, and uh in the veggie tales, he has a flannel graph. Puts the... Little shepherd boy with his one little sheep, a shepherd with his one little sheep, and and uh, the king, the great king, with all of these sheep. The king has a visitor come over, and Nathan says, "What does the king do?" The king goes and takes the one sheep from the sh- from the shepherd who only has one, and he kills it and feeds his. Nathan says, "Now, King David, what should be done to this man?" And David, in the fury, says, uh, "He should be killed." He should be destroyed. How could he do such a thing? And Nathan, I don't know if he does it with the point of his finger or maybe just the power of his words, but he says, you are that man. You are that man. And David realizes the gravity of his mistakes. The depths to which he has fallen. And he's broken. He's broken. I know some of you here today have perhaps experienced adultery, unfaithfulness. I know maybe some of you in your marriages have been through an inordinate amount of pain. I know you probably know everything that comes along with, with infidelity. You know the shame. You know the tries and attempts to cover it up. You know the lies that happen. You know the guilt. That sense that you owe someone something or that you've taken something from someone that wasn't yours to take. Perhaps you know the resentment. That sense that someone owes you something and that someone has taken something from you. Perhaps you know the pain, the unbelievable pain that results from loss. Loss of trust, loss of a sense of security in your relationship, loss of safety, loss of perhaps your self-esteem. Loss of control. Perhaps some of you have experienced divorce because of this process. You know firsthand what it's like to hear the words, I'm seeing someone. Or perhaps you know the difficulty of saying them. You've been there. Or perhaps you are there. God is speaking to you today. He says to you, though you have been faithless, I am faithful. I will forgive. I will restore. But you must see your brokenness. You must see the pain you've caused. And, David, we all have ways of healing. And I hope and pray that if you've experienced this in your life, in your relationships, or if you're experiencing it right now, that you are committed to a journey of healing in your own life. That you have found somebody to walk beside you in this journey. A trusted counselor. Some good friends. But David had his own way of grieving and and healing. And he, for him, he wrote music. Turn with me to the book of Psalm. The book of Psalms is replete with David's ups and downs in life. His moments of faithfulness, his moments of bitter pain. Psalm 51. Some of your Bibles, you may have a heading under that. Under that. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so we catch a glimpse into the heart of someone who had been broken. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you Save me from blood guilt, O God, that God who saves me and my tongue will sing of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare Your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise and out of the depths of his pain. And I often wonder what the psalm would have sounded like if Bathsheba had written it. I often wonder what it would sound like from the other side of the pain. But David here, we see David coming back to the reality that in the depths of his sin, he knows that God is faithful and that he will not abandon him perhaps the most the most difficult thing with adultery with us now because it doesn't really talk much about how it affected David's other wives. You know, I mean, they were probably pretty used to him philandering and uh, probably weren't really connected with him anyway. But for you and I who live in a society where importance is placed on monogamy, um, faithfulness to one partner, to one spouse, and to having quality, excellent relationships, we experience some very different results or different Consequences of adultery than perhaps David did. And you and I have a lot greater struggle trying to figure out if forgiveness will include reconciliation or if forgiveness means that the relationship needs to end. There's a painful process that the people that experience adultery go through the need to identify the loss, the necessity of confrontation, the dialogue of gaining understanding, and most importantly, the healing power of forgiveness. Because whether the relationship lasts or whether it doesn't, forgiveness is important. For yourself. For your partner. For God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's difficult to talk about. I told a friend of mine that I was preaching today on the subject and um, asked him if he had any wisdom for me, what I should ask him, what I should talk about. And uh, his answer was profound. And I'm going to share it with you. He said, tell them, don't do it. So that's the message I bring to you today. Don't do it. But I wanted to leave you with something maybe a little more positive. Because really the commandments as we see them, as we know them, aren't just protective boundary fences so that we run up to them as close as we can get and they'll keep us from going out and experiencing things. But like we said earlier with the, with the illustration, the metaphor, the fences are actually there to enhance and to promote what is growing. To really become fruitful. And to take this commandment seriously, we can't just think about what we should not do. Actually, that would be detrimental because the more we think about what we shouldn't do, the more we're probably going to want to do it. So in actuality, what you and I need to leave with is okay then. What do we do? Those of you who are in committed relationships, who are in a marriage, Those of you who are hoping someday to be in one, perhaps. Or those of you who are in relationships with good friends or with family. I think you and I need to spend our time figuring out not just how to keep from going outside of the boundaries, but how to really fertilize and... Okay, maybe that's not a good word to use. Uh, How to prevent... I mentioned the things that come in and nibble. I had a terrible faux pas this morning. I I said, you know, the fences just aren't on the top. In California, we've got gophers, and don't get me started with gophers. But gophers go underneath, and you often don't see them until you start seeing your plants disappear. Have you seen that? I I actually watched a plant disappear one day from my garden. Got out my stick of dynamite and (laughs) went to it. But uh, I had a friend who said that he actually dug huge ditches um, around his property and, and lined it with, with mesh wire under the ground so the, so the gophers can't come inside. And I think you and I need to spend some time really figuring out. And I want to leave you with a few practical things today. And um, I'm going to talk to you, those of you that are married. Because I think, I, think, uh, I, think, I, think, I think we need to be reminded of this. Some practical things to make our relationships God-honoring. To make them the best they can be, some practical things. And I think the first thing, um, first thing is, is that uh, you and I need to spend our time committing ourselves to figuring out what our spouses' needs are. You know your spouse. Some of you have been married years, 50, 60 years. Been married a long time, and you have a pretty good sense of how to push your partner's buttons, what to say what not to do. And you probably have a pretty good sense of what your partner needs most to feel fulfilled. At least I hope you do. It's amazing, though, there are some marriages that go on 50, 60, 70 years, and you ask them at the end of their marriage, were you really fulfilled in your marriage? Nope, but I was faithful. How sad. How sad. I think God designed marriages not just to be faithful, but to be fruitful, to be fulfilling. Do you know your partner's needs? Do you know what they need most, more than anything else in the world? Have you asked them? I wonder what they would say. They may not be able to give you an answer, but at least they would start the wheel going. Do you know your partner's greatest needs? This is very much generalizing, and I hate to do this because it's like simplifying, but I'm going to do it anyway. But generalizing, they say that some of the women's most important needs are the need of affection. Is that true, ladies? Is, that, is there any bearing to that? Affection? You need to be loved? Is that true? How come we have a hard time with that, guys? How come... It's not me. Okay, let me talk to your wife. How come we have a hard time with that? How come... Well, I think it's because their needs are different than ours. We don't need all of, the, all of the love. And you know what happens in the mind of a woman I, I've heard? I don't know. What happens is that when a woman has affection, has that faithful commitment of a spouse that loves, it symbolizes for them protection and security and comfort and approval. Is that right? Help me out, ladies. Is that right? You, you feel that. It sends the message, I will take care of you. You're important to me. I'm concerned about the problems you face. We need to understand, gentlemen, that, that how strongly these women need that. And for the typical wife, I've heard that there can hardly be enough of them. My wife is smiling too big over there. She knows that I... That's what's the tough thing about preaching. <laughs> there, There are so many different ways. So many different ways to communicate affection. Kisses, cards, flowers... Dinner's out, opening the door, holding hands, walks after dinner, back rubs, phone calls, thousands of ways to say I love you to your spouse. From a woman's point of view, affection is the cement. Faithful, loyal affection is the cement that holds relationship together. All right along with that, right along with that is openness and honesty. Communication. I've heard anyway communication. Women have a need to be heard. And they have also a need to hear from us, which is a little challenging because we don't have a need to talk. I'll just tell you that right now. It's difficult for me to talk this length of time and I'm actually done. When I'm done here, I'm done talking for the day. I'm done. We have a difficult time expressing well, some of us. than well, again, I'm generalizing and I hate to do that, but it's difficult, but you have that need and you need to hear from us. You need to hear what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and if we've had a good day or not. Or Yeah. You need to know because that for you is connecting, I've heard. And that's where intimacy grows and develops. Oh, okay. Men, I know this is to be true. One of the greatest needs of men is respect and admiration. Respect and admiration. There's something about the way we're wired, that if we know our wives respect us and honor us and really admire us, makes us want to conquer the world. It does. That ego thing, I don't know. (laughs) But in a healthy way, in a healthy way, it makes us want to protect and love and, and do even more to honor and to respect your spouse. Honest admiration is a great motivator for men. And going right along with that, can I say this out loud, and maybe I'll just use the code word? Men need physical intimacy. Is that OK to say? That's OK, that's OK to say. Could use a three-letter word, but you'll have to explain that to your children afterwards. Uh, that's something important for men. It's, it's the way we're wired, and again, I'm generalizing and some — OK, but it's important. And women, you may not understand how important it is, what it is. And yes, there are deviant behaviors associated with that. And yes, there are addictions that are not healthy and that should not be um, promoted. But, but it's a need that we have. And, and it's interesting how this works because it, when a woman seems to have the proper amount of affection, it seems like the physical intimacy happens a lot easier. Is that true? When a woman feels loved and protected and honored. Physical intimacy seems to happen pretty naturally. Just some thoughts to consider in your relationships, in your marriages. And those of you who aren't in the marriages, forget that last thing I just said. For later on. (laughs) I wish we had time today. It's such a broad topic. It's such an expansive topic. It's such a beautiful topic. This way that God has created us to be in relationship with each other. To experience love and fulfillment and joy. As we close today and the worship team comes up, um, I'd like to just uh, invite you to consider one final thing that I would encourage you to do to make your relationships God-honoring. Whether they're relationships with your family or with your Children or with your spouse, you need to have time with God. You need to allow Him to nurture your soul. To tend your soul. Because a marriage, a relationship, being a parent, cannot happen the way God designed it unless you and I allow ourselves, open ourselves up, Create times and spaces in our busy, hectic lives for God to come and to speak His faithfulness and His love into us. You and I are unfaithful creatures. That's the way we are. We are sinful. We are unfaithful. And we need that time. We need that space. We need that intimacy with God to be reminded that He is our Father and that He longs to create within us the ability to represent to the world through our relationships the beautiful relationship that He has with us. That's what a marriage is about. It's about showing the world what God wants for us. What God wants with us. The relationship. So I just encourage you, take that time. Clear your schedule. Put it on your Palm Pilots. Create space for God to speak to you. To create His sanctuary within you. I want to invite you to pray with me. And before we pray, I just want to encourage you, as you take that time to be with God, if there are areas in your life that are broken, in your relationships, that are not the way that you know that they need to be, I invite you to find somebody. Find somebody you trust. Share with them. Pray with them. Ask, ask, ask them to lift you up to God. Because God desires more than anything else for you and I to be happy, to be healthy, to be whole in the relationships that we have. So do that. Let's our heads, Lord. We find ourselves so divided so much of the time. Pulled in so many different directions, tempted by so many different things. God, we desire faithfulness and yet we find ourselves being unfaithful. Lord, we know and we trust today that you are the God of all faithfulness. No matter how far we've fallen, no matter how deep our pain. God, we trust in You. We throw ourselves on Your mercy and Your grace. God, we pray that You will create within us clean hearts and renewed spirits within us. Lord, You will cause us to be people who have faithfulness. People who keep their word. People who honor their vows people who cherish their relationships. God, most of all, we want to be people who seek after you with desire to have that desire for you. So thank you so much, Jesus, for who you are, for your love, for your mercy, your grace. We rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.